Today's episode opens with a clip from The Pillars of the Earth, a TV miniseries adapted from Ken Follett's 1989 novel of the same name. It's been a favorite of mine for a long time, both the book and the TV series, and it just seemed the perfect opening for my conversation with stonemason Brad Steele. Listen on, and I think you'll see why. We'll have a wooden ceiling like the old church. I preferred stone, but it's far too heavy. Also, it's hard to find long pieces of timber, so the nave will have to be only 32 feet wide, but it'll be high, be very high. How will the walls support the weight? Well, have a look at this. Pointed arches, never seen such a thing. It will bear the weight better, which along with the buttresses will allow the windows to be tall, tall enough to let in the light. A cathedral, It's God's ante-room. It's halfway to heaven. And the light... The light is everything. How long will this take? Well, it depends how many people you employ, but if you were to hire... 30 masons, with enough laborers, carpenters, and smiths to service them at 15 years. Have you done this before? No. How do you know it'll work? It'll work. What do you think? Hey everyone, it's Karen here, anthropologist, historical archaeologist, and wannabe time traveler. Welcome to another episode of Working Over Time, the podcast that examines society through the lens of the work that we do over time and across cultures. Today, we're going to be talking about stonemasonry in the Middle Ages. And this is actually a topic that I've been dying to do for ages, so I'm really grateful to our guest today. His name is Brad Steele. He is a certified master mason who specializes in the restoration and conservation of historic architecture, sculpture, and monuments. In 2014, he was one of only nine craftsmen to receive the ancient honor of master mason, awarded by the Worshipful Company of Masons Craft Boards. He also was made a free man of the Worshipful Company of Masons in 2009. An approved contractor of the National Trust East Midlands, Brad provides historic masonry consultancy and skills training. He delivers invited talks to heritage organizations and performs live demonstrations of his craft, both in person and on TV, including living history demonstrations set in the medieval, Georgian, and Victorian time periods. Brad, I'm really delighted to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Hello, yeah, it's a pleasure. I'm, I'm really looking forward to having a chat about my uh, my craft. Well, you know, it's funny. We we have a range of guests, as you may know, on the podcast, and um, all of them have an expertise in the topic under discussion. But uh, I find that it it really can be exciting to have a person on, such as yourself, who not only is an expert in the history of a craft, but actually 
a master of it himself. So really excited to both talk generally kind of about how this craft has evolved and how it is still practiced today, but also to kind of get that peek over the shoulder that you only can get with someone who actually walks the walk as well as talking the talk. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, really looking forward to it. Excellent. Wonderful. So what I'd love for you to do, as we always do, is, is have you kind of set the stage for our listeners and give us just a basic definition, because, you know, maybe not everybody knows. I'm not sure I know exactly what the parameters are of a stonemason's job. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, the, the, the description of the job now or the craft itself is essentially the same as it's been for many, many hundreds of years. And just to, to briefly explain that, the job of a stonemason as such um, is historically would have been to design the structure itself, the stone structure. Um, any kind of template making based on any stone that's going to be work or carved and sculpted. And obviously moving on to, to hand carving and hand sculpting and hand working the stones themselves. Um, now, stone structures, obviously, you know, we can generically say churches, castles, cathedrals, stately homes, monuments, that kind of thing. Um, but obviously, within each and every one of those properties are many, many different shapes and styles of stones. Um, and the mason is responsible for that, you know, working the stone. And eventually, once a stone has been worked and carved, then it's fitted into the building, either historically as a process of construction or in the modern world as a process of restoration or conservation. So it's really broad, actually. A lot of different skills required to, to perform yeah. this job well. It is, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's the apprenticeship traditionally, you know, um, should be no less than about four and a half, five years. Historically, it was seven years. There's a huge amount to learn, if I'm honest. The skill set is, is, is pretty broad. We're talking about England, right? In the Middle, middle Ages, yeah. the early Middle Ages? Okay, great. Yeah. So when, when did that emerge as a profession, so to speak? You know, I think about a lot of wooden structures in the medieval sure. period in this yeah. part of the world. Maybe you could just give us a really brief answer to that with the expectation. We'll probably unpick it a little more, you know, in a little more detail as we talk later. I think, I mean, if, if we probably step a bit further back in time from the, 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 the period that we, we're looking at the moment, just briefly, I mean, stone as a material, as long as it's been quarried and, and mankind has recognised stone as a material, as a building product, then there's been an associated craft with working and, and shaping the stone, you know? I mean, if, if we really want to dig deeper, we can go back to structures um, like Stonehenge, for example, or, or sure. although, albeit they're not as ornate and decorated as, as the the structures we'd see, you know, developing in the Middle Ages, um, they st the stone still has to be quarried and still has to be worked and shaped. Um, so the association with the craft could possibly go right back to that. But as we look at stone as a medium that can be shaped and worked into a recognisable shape, you know, uh, relative to architecture, then, you know, um, we're creeping up to the to the Norman period, really, where the craft itself, I think, in my own personal opinion, I mean, this this could be, you know, we could have arguments about it all day, but I think that the craft really expanded and was born after the Norman invasion. The techniques of working and carving stone um, 
they were around before, prior to the Norman invasion, obviously. I mean, you know, we had beautiful Saxon structures and we still have a few around today. Um, but a lot of, you know, defensive structures, ecclesiastic structures and, you know, certain uh, private dwellings, they were, they were still, you know, utilising wood as a material to build these. And um, yeah. the, the Norman invasion, I think, brought with it... Um, lots a, a huge wide range variations of the use of stone you know bridges and also incorporation into roads as well and and smaller structures and so um 1066 onward basically is, is yeah you know 11th about. century i mean it's um the the, the the style of architecture i suppose we, we could we could say would be romanesque and and there the you know the type of architecture itself it, it's 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 not as ornate as decorated as it would become as we we entered into you know the the gothic period of architecture um but it's still in itself a very beautiful kind of architecture i mean we we see the development of the rounded arch in norman architecture um which aside from being you know cosmetically right is actually a beautiful piece of engineering um once we've developed an arch then obviously we can have windows and doorways um, incorporated into what specifically would be ecclesiastic buildings. And I think what the Normans did is, is um, not so much started again because their architecture is Romanesque, but they, they, they blended it into their own style. So uh, as I mentioned, uh, the, you know, the, the start of the use of the, the rounded arch and things like that was really the beginning for the great cathedrals in this country, I think. It's a lot heavier than what we think about as the high Gothic stone style isn't it uh, styles change obviously as cathedrals started to become you know wider and longer and taller and bigger um, then they had to develop technologies basically to accommodate these styles whereas the the roman styles i think weren't so much about height you know they were huge structures um, i've seen these these structures and you know the, the lights of the Colosseum and things like that were um and those kind of structures obviously had an element of height, but I mean, the, the, the grandness of them is just incredible. Um, so ideas and, and methods and technologies used by the Romans uh, uh, did survive right through to the, you know, the Norman period and they did use them. But architecturally, there was a lot of difference, I think, in that. Now maybe talk a little bit about the typical day in the life of an early medieval stonemason. You know, he sort of wakes up in the morning and what's on his mind? I mean, other than breakfast, of course. <laughs> yeah, breakfast first, obviously. Yeah, um, most important meal of the day. <laughs> I think, you know, um, in comparison to, to myself, you know, <laughs> with the, the process we go through during the day and before we get, we get to work and things like that, that would have been a huge amount of difference. He would have had the normal worries uh, of a working man, I imagine, um, from that time. They... You know, I'm sure they'd have had livestock that the, the, the mason themselves would have, um, you know, had enough money to have some livestock on his in, in, in his dwelling. Um, you know, that the start of the day, that would have been dealt with because it would have been another form of income for the mason, really. Um, the mason would only have been paid if he worked. So for any reason at all, he couldn't have worked uh, on that particular construction site of that particular cathedral or castle then, um, obviously having 
pigs, cattle, livestock would have benefited him, you know. Oh, so interesting. So even a master mason was likely to have a diversified source of income. I mean, it makes sense in any yeah, sort of I mean, self-employment scenario. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it, it's... it's there's no real i wouldn't say there's a huge amount of evidence but I'd, I'd have thought that you know there would have been a master mason status would have been higher than a general you know um normal traveling stonemason so yeah i'd have thought there'd have been an element of uh, of livestock and things like that um now the, the the day as regards to working physically working he would have had to you know get to his site um if he was um an apprentice or journeyman then that, that site or location could have been some distance away, if I'm honest. So he would have had um, a dwelling or, or lodgings close by. He'd have got to work um, very early um, as it gets light. So you, you're working really with the hours of daylight, you know, as opposed to we spin forward in time where we have, you know, illumination that can assist us at various times of the day to work. That didn't exist then, really. Um, so daylight has a, a huge bearing. So he's getting up very, very early. You know, in the summertime, which would have been the really been the main bulk of the the workload as regards to construction, then he'd have been getting up. You know, probably about half past five, four o'clock, depending on the the walk or the trip to the job. Um, as soon as he gets to work, he would have been aware already if it wasn't his first day there. Uh, of the stones and you know the work he had to do that day with regards to working or carving the stones um, but the, the length of the day really would have depended on the daylight to be honest and might he have had any sort of um, hierarchy of people that he worked for or who worked for him I, I mean I understand there would have been a yeah. difference if you were a journeyman versus a master um so yeah. maybe actually maybe it would be a good idea to just explain that apprenticeship structure right up front because i can i can see that we might you know want to be talking about distinctions that we want to yeah. make sure are clear to the audience so yet yeah, the distinction essentially in the craft so the bottom and the ladder you've got the apprentice um after that that's the journeyman the journeyman we will use as the title for the the qualified stonemason um, he's no longer an apprentice, but he hasn't achieved the status of master mason. Uh, and then at the top of the tree is the, the master mason. And, and of course, as with any apprenticeship, anybody that listens to this that served a traditional apprenticeship in, in any craft or trade will know, like myself, for example, that it's not all about training. There are, you know, menial tasks that have to be done. Um, that wouldn't have been any different in those days, if I'm honest. Uh, there would have been laborers around to do lots of menial tasks that's one thing they they had you know plenty of with, with labor um, and so the laborer but, would be even below the pecking order of the, the laborer yes could. now that they wouldn't specifically have worked all the time with masons in the construction of um, a cathedral for example they'd have been joiners blacksmiths masons plasterers um, on site and they would have worked around the site um, and incidentally when the site it's generally shut down for the winter where a lot of the stone was worked and carved in, in workshops. The labourers would go on and work on the land for farmers and things like that. So um, to some extent, they, they would help masons, you know, one day and then maybe the next day they would be working with um, carpenters. Just generally, it was completely unskilled, obviously. So they'd be you know, carrying stone, transporting stone, mixing lime mortar was a huge job for the labourer. 
Um, but The Apprentice, um, when he wasn't under instruction or being taught, then he would have done things like sharpening chisels. You know, he, he would have himself moved some stone around as well and had experience with mixing lime mortar. So you really do start at the very, very bottom of the, of the ladder. And you need to do that. You need to know every part of the job, if I'm honest. Um, he would have to have a full understanding of the lime mortar on, you know, what it did, uh, the aftercare that you need to apply to lime mortar once it's been used and applied to a piece of stone. He'd have to understand all of that. Um, and then, so his day may have been a bit longer than the journeyman and master mason, if I'm honest. He may have had to arrive slightly early in the morning, um, prepare some tools. He'd be taught how to sharpen the tools, which is one of the very first jobs you need to learn. Uh, for obvious reasons, you need to be able to look after your tools. Don't look after your tools, they won't look after you. Um, no. We never blame our tools for a bad job. <laughs> no. If you have a bad no. job, it's always you, if I'm honest. You've got it. You can't blame a, you know, a, a piece of uh, steel or iron at the end of the day. Well, I think particularly when you're dealing with unmechanized tools, right? You can't even say, oh, gosh, yeah. the gear got stuck or oh, my internet went down. <laughs> yeah, the electricity's gone out today. Yeah. Um, so... So the apprentice, you know, the, the ages of, I'm, at the moment, I'm, I'm looking at researching a bit deeper about apprenticeships in this period. I'm really fascinated about the life of an apprentice. But, you know, the age is really, it, it's it maybe relevant to the, the strength and ability of, of the, the lad, um, if I'm honest. If, um, if the, the boy was the son of a stonemason, for example, the mason himself would look, for his son to continue the craft um and it's not it doesn't always happen genes don't always filter down as as we want them to you know the the son may not have the general ability to do the job you know not it's not for everyone not not everyone can do it um but you may be looking at you know 12 13 14 years old dependent on the the ability you know children as we know can have especially mm. boys can have be different sizes you know strengths and things like that the, the the apprentice as a boy isn't going to be expected to have the strength of a man i mean that, that's that's obvious but the strength will come later believe me when i personally started in the craft at 16 years old um i i was very thin you know <laughs> i could hide behind a broomstick and you wouldn't be able to see me but <laughs> the, the, essentially the job gives you the strength in the right areas in the back and in the arms you know so so, yeah, the apprentice would be a young lad, essentially. Um, and then quickly, if we just go on to journeyman, once once the apprenticeship had, had completed, that'd be about seven years, give or take. Um, it, it You could describe it as an indenture. So you would, you would be indentured. I was going to say that number is remarkably similar to the years of indenture in this in this you know, sort of time period it, into the early modern period. It is, is yeah. related? It is. I mean, that the... the that style um, lasted you know, up to very, very recently, right up to the you know, 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s even, um, where that, that description of indenture you know, started to disappear, really. Um, I mean, if you left or you know, couldn't complete your apprenticeship literally within a few weeks of the seven-year time, then you just wouldn't get your papers. Now, your papers were the proof proof of your qualification um, or if at any time you didn't come up to standard you know or make the mark so to speak um then that would be it <laughs> it was you know yeah. th there was there were no like 
second chances, where there may have been second chances, that, that's cruel, I shouldn't say that, but the, you just wouldn't employ someone as an apprentice for a couple of years, you know, knowing full well that they're not going to have the ability. And if I'm honest, you know, we can tell as, as craftsmen uh, within a few weeks, really, if people have got the ability to, to do the job. Um, and I'll just quickly uh, describe what I mean by the ability to do the job. Yeah, yeah, please um, do. The, the craft itself is going to involve um surveying measuring stone even in the period we're looking at um very detailed um artistic carving and sculpture can be involved as well not every stonemason delves into the you know um fine art sculpture or i do personally uh, but there will be elements um uh, of geometry almost all the time especially with trace through windows so the person you know the apprentice they have to be be able to adapt to that and understand it you know um if any stage they struggle with it and they just cannot do it you know it's not not for everyone the design stage always begins with two tools and that's relevant to this day as well and one tool is called the uh, dividers or you may call it a compass um and secondary uh, the second tool is the square so that's a 90 degree angle um, oh, right, from those okay. two tools we can design we create the draftsmanship and the templates to create any kind of tracery shape or radius shape um, within architecture. So the apprentice tracery really... shape. Sorry, sorry, Brad, would you yeah. mind just defining tracery? It's a word you keep saying, and yeah, I don't sorry. know what it means. What? No, tracery. not at all. Just a... So let's let's look at um, if we imagine ourselves approaching a, a beautiful um, a perpendicular Gothic cathedral, for example, you know, in the UK, and we're approaching the the west end the west front of the building so that's the way you would go into any church or cathedral generally for a wedding or anything like that or as a visitor and you go through and then walking through the west end or the west door you look directly ahead you're going to see the altar okay which is in the east end of the church or the cathedral and at the back of the altar there'll be what called the chancel end there'll be a huge window okay mm -hmm. so essentially uh, it's a church window and the bigger the church window the, the more complex and bigger the tracery and the tracery is effectively the shapes the styles within the window and within the tracery is the stained glass um, uh, okay does that make it a bit clearer Do you... oh yes no i can see it you sketched a beautiful picture in my mind yeah eye. i mean it's there complicated are... stuff it is yeah <laughs> it's, and it's, if it's... i'm honest we, we can break down tracery a bit more we do have terms within tracery tracery is kind of a generic description of the that, you know the shapes and stars you'll see within within a window mm. um so the geometry involved in that you you have to be taught that obviously but I'll, i'm going to mention something very quickly and it's a term i use within the craft and a lot of old masons i work with and it's a term called a core skill so a core ability or a natural talent now this is something that you're actually born with um so, for example, um, being artistic, um, my own personal view is you, you cannot teach anybody to be artistic. Um, you have to be born with that core skill, that natural ability. And as, as artisans, if you want, um, we will take an apprentice that has that core skill and ability, and we will give them the skills and we will teach them. Um, we will teach them the methods. Um, you know, via an apprenticeship to obviously expand on their natural ability to, to make them into craftsmen. 
Um, so that's very important. That's something that we do look for in apprenticeship. And it would have been you assess for. it. I totally can imagine when yeah, I'm, and I there imagine are ways. the complexity of these beautiful stone structures that you're talking about. But yeah, I'll just quickly um, describe the, the, the second interview during my apprenticeship stage. Um, now, I, I went for a first interview. Um, I had to take lots of artwork with me from school so he could, you know, see what I'd done. And he was looking for this artistic ability, this, this core talent, you know, that we're, we're talking about. Um, and obviously that artwork could have been borrowed from a friend, you know, or a family member. Um, <laughs> I, I did excel in school with art. Uh, you know, I will say that was one of my major talents, which clearly helps with my profession. Um, so... I sat across the table from this master mason and he had a huge oak desk and he slid across the desk um, an A3 pad. So he said, I'm going to ask you to draw some things. He says, don't worry about it. I'm not looking for masterpieces or anything like that. And then I'm going to ask you to, um, to draw some letters, lettering in a Roman style or Roman font. And I was like, okay. So he asked me to draw a flower. Um, he asked me to... Um, draw my initials in Roman font and bear in mind I'd come from school and obviously we studied calligraphy um, but he was looking at my ability to illustrate naturally um, and by that I mean without tracing any form or copying anything so I'm using my you know imagination effectively I like freehand as, as I would yeah, call it sure. yeah sure and then once he was happy with that, I called back for a third interview. Then I got the job and you have a probationary period of six months. And that's really the time when they're looking at you. And we monitored all the time. I, there was myself and another apprentice. Um, and, you know, it, they're looking at everything. Our natural ability to, to illustrate and mark stone up. Um, certainly when we were going through the instruction of geometry, how quickly we took it on. Um, and as I say, it's not for everyone. But part of that core skill and that, that talent to be able to naturally illustrate things. You know, when I uh, uh, do a piece of sculpture in stone, people say, you know, well, where does it come from? Well, it just came, you know, comes from between my ears. And it's, it's almost undescribable, really, but it just happens or it doesn't happen. And that's what the, he was a master mason, the guy that I was apprenticed to, and that's what he was looking for. So if we go back in time, there would have been relevant tests like that. Um, if if the young lad um, was apprenticed to his father, his father would be fully aware of his you know his abilities or not. So we can tell, we we can tell, and and certainly as craftsmen, um, when we we have apprentices, you know we can tell. And and essentially, even when I was an apprentice, um, if he didn't you know make the cut, then that would be it, and the, the apprenticeship would be over in your career path in, in that craft would finish and, and that sounds quite cruel but essentially that there's little point taking someone for five years um, and training them and basically which you know you're investing a lot of time into these, these yeah guys. no that makes perfect sense because yeah, you I need mean, to move along to to the person who's actually going yeah. to succeed i mean i'm all for, for encouraging people in that we all have dreams and we all, there's always things that we like to do but uh, there just seems little point in someone pursuing something that really they're not they're not going to be very good at if i'm honest let's just say we've got someone who who makes that initial cut they spend their seven years they get their papers as you called it i believe yeah. that they are um qualified but not yet a master mason yeah. what happens between the achievement of journeyman status and master status 
Yeah, this is the big question. So what what do you do to become a master mason? I mean, this is I get asked this a hell of a lot. Obviously. A lot of really good stone stone masonry, I assume, yeah, is the yeah. short so answer. But <laughs> there is um there's an element of what we call time served. So essentially, um, if you've been a mason for 10, 15 years, that's not enough, if I'm honest. As the guys historically walked, worked around as a journeyman, I just explained journeyman. Now a journeyman would be, and, and that title is relevant in any craft really or trade, um, most likely with crafts. The crafts with their guilds have the ability to work around in different areas. They weren't defined one area, you know, like the West Midlands or whatever, or London. Um, so, for example, a, a, a craftsman from Birmingham could go and work down in London. Um, and he'll work as a journeyman. That's where the term journeyman comes from. Um, yeah, okay, so he, literally... Yeah, literally, yeah. I mean, it would, you know, a bit of a nomadic life for, for a young journeyman prior to, to starting a family, I would assume. Um, but they would be known as well, although there were much more Masons around in those days than there are today, a huge amount. Um, there would be small teams, really, that would know each other, um, and they would, that's really how would they, they would get further work on commission or on what we call piecework is essentially you get paid for the amount of work or stone that you produce um so the master mason that would employ different journeymen would be you know a lot of the time guys they trusted um and experience knowledge um that would be noticed so as a, a journeyman gets older and his his time in the craft is you know adding up you know 15 20 years plus um, it's it's noticeable that the, the journeyman himself can probably take command of other masons and have give other masons direction as regards to you know the relevant specification of the architects they're spe specifically working on. Um, they've mastered um, every element of the craft as well. You really have to be good at every element of the craft, and, and we always spoke about you know it's a huge skill set. Um, then. This would be recognised as well or brought to the attention of the guilds or the livery companies, uh, which is quite important to um, the awarding of the status of Master Mason. Um, yeah, so tell us about that. That The, the, the guilds were um, an institutional organisation of training for crafts yeah. of all different kinds, as I understand it. But um, I'd yeah, love it if sure. you could just sort of explain a little bit more specifically how the guild was set sure. up, how it worked, and particularly in, in terms of stonemasonry. Um, they were really there to police the quality of work as well. I mean, this is the important thing, essentially. Um, as they were the ones that would award master certificates or master, you know, titles to stonemasons, they would want to you know, it'd be on their shoulders effectively that these people were the right people for the job because we have to look really historically that the master mason was in overall command of the construction of a of a structure, you know. Yeah, like that's major, right? I mean, there's safety yeah. issues. Forget I mean, the aesthetic of, of questions. <laughs> so, you know, um, that they would be the brightest masons. And as I mentioned before, they, they would have to be good. I'm going to use a modern term now with man management, you know, or people management. Um, obviously in those days, you, you have to direct a lot of masons and there would have been, you know, a few, fair few on a job, you know, a hundred masons, for example, they all need sorting out and they all need directing, you know. Um, so the girls would have to make sure 
that the right people were doing the right job and not just for master masons but for for stonemasons and journeymen so the guilds would also be responsible for for awarding uh, the tickets the papers um, you know to at the completion of um, an apprentice apprenticeship um, so it, it's a good idea and that's so not some people i've spoken to have compared them really to a union um not so much really they were there really for the the, the standards and skills you know the, the mm, title okay. as opposed to advocating on workers behalves it's really advocating yeah. on the the, the the crafts behalf it sounds really, like yeah i mean i would I, i'm not a you know i haven't delved really deep in, in into you know the comparison between unions and guilds but i think the the guilds essentially were more interested in the policing the skills and the quality um, of the craft itself mm. and obviously that's mm -hmm. that's important uh, there was always a lot of pride and there still is today with those of us that practice the craft um, so you really have to have pride in your work um, and there's i do get quest asked questions about the relationship between freemasonry um, and uh, craft skills as regards to guilds and certainly the livery companies um, now, Freemasonry, I'm just going to touch on that very, very briefly. Yeah, I'll, please I'll, do. I'll, and the livery companies as well, as definitely, distinct yeah. from the guilds. That would that would be great. So the, the, uh, I'm a historian with Freemasonry, but um, in order, you know, for me to have an awareness and knowledge of the guilds, you have to really go back to a period where uh, the two were running in tandem. So Freemasonry, that started um, essentially you know, the period that we're looking at, you know, early medieval stonemasons and slightly prior to that as well. Uh, the master masons, you know, they would meet in lodges um, and they would discuss modern methods, modern to their time and relative to their time. Uh, and there would be an element of secrecy about this. If you imagine a group of master masons that have just developed a new idea. A right, new, they're on the um, cutting edge. Yeah, they don't this, want just anyone yeah, to know, right? <laughs> what they're doing been, and this, how. Exactly. There were no books yeah. written on this. Um, if you developed an idea uh, relative to engineering, so that would be something that would assist the builders in making a church tower 100 foot taller, you know, uh, and, and the examples of those are the flying buttress, the scissor arch, um, mm. any kind of strengthening engineering detail within a church or a cathedral. Someone's had to think of that. And it was the the master mason really was the architect and structural engineer. So they would meet in lodges and they would talk about this and everything would be very secret. They didn't want anyone else to know about it because obviously the client, who essentially was the church, um, they would employ different master masons, you know. So if you, you and a group of the master masons had an idea that could make a, a cathedral longer or wider or taller, then you'd be the guys that got the work. Um, so that the term lodge I mentioned obviously is relevant today in Freemasonry. They, their specific uh, locations are called lodges. Um, now, what happened as, as, as we go into probably, I think, about the 17th century, um, the number and members of these lodges, as they later became, who were all exclusively stonemasons and master masons, to be honest, um, they wanted to invite other people into the lodge. Um, so they would invite people from the gentleman class or professional classes. Um, and that created a term called speculative masonry. Now, as original 
stonemasons involved with Freemasonry. They were called operative masonry. So we have two different terms there. We have operative masons. So that would be me. Um, and we have speculative masons. So they're people that are Freemasons that have no trade or craft relevance to, to the craft itself. Um, so really after and what did they time, bring to the table did they well, that's bring interesting yeah money I mean, I, ideas from other fields I, how interesting well it, it is and i'd like to dig deeper into that karen that does fascinate me because if we look at the reason that the lodges are set up and one of the groups uh, of essentially professionals of the day you know master masons would meet up there would be a, a huge relevance to design and engineering of architecture um but as time went by, uh, you know, um, the, the dates that I found are roughly about, you know, 17th century, where maybe the numbers had dropped and they just wanted to add to their numbers, maybe from a social mm -hmm. point of view, you know. Sure. Um, I, I think uh, maybe there would have been some um, monetary element to this uh, that people paid in, I don't know, um, which certainly would have attracted them to invite you know, people from the gentleman class, should we speak. Um, and that's as it's stretched out over the years, um, speculative masonry has taken over from operative masonry. Um, it's essentially, you know, where it is now. But as I say, I'm not a historian of Freemasonry, but um, my, my association is the connection with that. So, yes, originally mm -hmm. um, there was a connection. Obviously, it was stonemasons, master masons that, that were involved in Freemasonry. That is fascinating. Yeah. And you know what? It makes perfect sense if you just look at the name, but it's not sure. something that might have been immediately clear given, you know, as you say, the the composition of these groups in yeah. the modern day. And, well, and may I just ask how the livery companies fit into it all just before we continue talking, just to make sure we're all on the same yeah. page with that. How, so how, the livery companies um, to date, I will say there's uh, give or take a about a 110 livery companies now they they do expand all the time there's there's um worshipful companies which is another term for them worshipful companies of everything essentially profession trade and craft but if we go back obviously to the period we were looking at um my own company um was really granted their arms when you're granted your arms that's when your delivery company the worshipful company actually starts to exist you know in earnest um the mason's company started in 1472 um and they really prior to that i think were blended into the guild system so there were various guilds around the country that as we spoke about, were responsible for controlling where guys worked and also policing the skills, standards of the industry, awarding master certificates and also apprenticeships. Um, the livery companies were obviously centred around the city of London. So though, you'd have the largest mm -hmm. concentration with, of, tra of trades, crafts and professions in that area. Quickly, their relevance in a modern world is essentially the same. Um, they started reissuing the master craftsman certificates uh, and titles um, in the year that I got on mine, which was about 2014, but they hadn't been issued for many, many years prior to that. And uh, in the modern world, they actually offer grants. The Masons Company is a brilliant company. They offer grants for guys and girls that want to get into the craft to sponsor them throughout an apprenticeship. So um, they really, really are a good company. 
as regards to the liveries I'm for promotion. So glad you mentioned girls. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Because you had mentioned lads a few times and and yeah, developing yeah. strength from spindly, you know, um yeah, sure. uh, preteens. Were there any girls involved in this trade in any way, shape, or form at the time that we're talking about? There, there are, I think there are some records. I mean, I know this that there's some um contemporary images you know paintings showing um female masons um uh, you know carving sculpture and working stones but what would have happened obviously and still to this day really is that um you have to be able to maneuver the stones and carry the stones um and get them from mm, a to right. b within a site even with the assistance of laborers um so it's hard to say really i'd be interested again as well to, to look a bit deeper into that and find out you know if um if if they did play a part i'm sure they did to be honest but maybe not as much as you know um as they should have been i don't know but um and also it's the social standing i think of, of women and females back in the day really you know yeah uh, yeah we, 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 yeah no, that, that makes sense. I mean, uh, the roles of women were quite limited um, in all spheres of life, weren't they? And, yeah, and that leads yeah. me to, to sort of wonder, you know, it sounds to me as if somebody getting lucky enough to get onto the ladder as an apprentice to a mason, that was probably a pretty coveted gig. That, that would be kind of appealing, given the alternatives at the time. Would, would you definitely. say that that's the case? Most definitely. Um, it's people often ask i do um historical interpretations of, of masons from three different periods as you mentioned in your intro and um that I, I get asked you know what kind of social standing a mason would have had in different periods and it, it's it's it would have been a high social standing especially as a, a master mason um i mean if you want to use a modern term research i've come across as has, has found that master masons and masters of various crafts, predominantly the master mason, um, would have been, you know, prosperous and equivalent to middle class, you know, to use a, a modern word or, you know, to, to kind of put someone in a, a category. Um, so as an apprentice, if you, if you got on that first, the most important first run of the ladder, um, you stuck with it and obviously completed your apprenticeship, um, it, it would be a career you would stay with. And obviously the, the actual aim is to achieve the status of Master Mason. Um, that's really what you want to be involved in focusing on, if I'm honest. So yeah, high status. Um, I often wish I had the status in the modern world, if I'm honest, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's, um, but there you go. There, you know, the, there are um, historical paintings and etchings of depicting um, Master Masons um, that, that I've seen over the years, and they're always in you know, fine robbery and finer clothes. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, yeah. The Master Mason more so really because um, of his standing. He would have been in overall commander, as I mentioned, of a, you know, a construction process, be it a castle or a, a house or a, more importantly, a cathedral. The trades would have been the carpenters and plasterers below. They're very fine and noble trades, if I might add. Um, but the Master Mason would have been a above there in the pecking order as regards to running things and the masters of the relevant trades would have worked below him. So he's, as I mentioned before, um, 
the architect, the engineer, he's the clerk of works, he's the project manager, again, to use modern terms, um, he's in overall command. So that, that, you know, has to have an effect on his social standing, surely. Oh, it sounds like, and it sounds like they might have done very well for themselves indeed, because um, in the absence of what we think about today as the job of an architect, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they were responsible from the ground exactly. up and supervising what sounds like it could have been a really big crew of people. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Just to get it done. Well, this makes me wonder about the typical customer. You, you've already mentioned the church and you said earlier, yeah. you know, castles, stately homes, monuments, even bridges and things. But maybe um, you could just pick a, a hypothetical customer and project and, and talk us through how the project would have proceeded sort of from the beginning you know okay we've contracted our 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 master mason to you know the completion of the construction of it so the master mason he would have been the conduit between um everyone else working the job or would propose to work on the job and the client so the client let's pick one um, a member of the landed gentry for example that wanted to extend their property so you know um to use a later term, a stately home. Um, they maybe wanted to add wings to it or they wanted to create a new house. Uh, what they initially would want, which is still relevant today, would be a design. Um, uh, the master mason, as we've mentioned, he would, he would be responsible for that. Designs would be proposed, um, drawn up, draftsmanship, everything would be done by the master mason. Um, there may have being a team, maybe a two or three masters, and they'd have been a senior guy, slightly older, maybe. But the client themselves, they would have um, they would have wanted a draft of the of the design of the property, um, or you know, showing every single detail. Um, everything would have been left to the master mason as regards to the engineering aspect, um, and it would have. And this is where where having been a part of the Freemasons and hearing the latest on on new tricks of the trade would have yeah. really served somebody well right to, to pitch they're basically pitching themselves definitely right? and <laughs> you know um, although i i've mentioned that um the, the master mason was in overall charge he had to be very nice obviously to the matters of the trades as well you know they were very <laughs> yeah. highly respected and one for example um is the the master blacksmiths now they they are really, they've got the stonemason over the barrel and also carpenters over the barrel because all of our tools are made by the blacksmith. So right. the blacksmith, uh, the master blacksmith on any site, now this is absolutely any construction site in this period and after, uh, they would be responsible for making all of the tools, uh, the chisels, uh, the dividers, the measuring pieces, I spoke about the compasses and the squares for the stonemason and also for the um, the carpenters as well. So we had to be very nice to the blacksmith. They were very important people. And the the, the guilds, you know, were, would have worked together, I imagine, to get a team together uh, of trusted journeymen craftsmen to partake in that particular project, you know. Um, as regards to scheduling and, and, you know, dialogue between the master mason and the client, who would have been a member of the landed gentry, um, uh, with schedules, I don't think it would have been, you know, uh, as detailed as it is to this day, you know, where everything's done by a strict schedule. Um, mm. Then would have been a rough schedule. So, you know, you, you're going to want to know how long things are going to take. But 
Um, as I mentioned, historically, the Masons craft and other crafts and trades, uh, it was seasonal. So as the bad weathers came, um, incidentally, something we don't stick to in the modern world, we have to operate the craft, you know, 12 months of the year. Right. As the bad well, we do, came, have, we do have portable heating and we've got yeah, we, structures that protect workers and all of that. Yeah, yeah it makes we, a big we, difference, doesn't it? Yeah, we get looked after now. But essentially, um, uh, one of the main elements for the, it being seasonal was the lime mortar that we used to, to involved in the construction. Then the lime mortar... Uh, as you're creating a structure that gets taller and taller and taller, you can't just simply add courses and courses as days go by. The mortar has to set, it has to cure, and it has to settle. So that was an excellent reason as the winters came to withdraw back to, you know, uh, workshops, temporary workshops where the masons would work the stones and carve the stone for the next season that comes up. So that would obviously have an effect in the schedule in the time frame as regards to the building, you know, and yeah, the construction. Sure. Um, and also an important point to this, um, with, with historically with, with large stone structures, they would never have been very far geographically from the source of the material, which would have been a quarry. Um, and for obvious reasons, you know, now I can, I can order stone in from Scotland if I want, or Somerset or the Southwest, you know, to come to the You've got more than a, more than a slew yeah. of laborers at your disposal, right? Yeah. You've got yeah. DHL. So, <laughs> that's it. That the stone um, we have the luxury of transport system. Um, they didn't have that, so um, they certainly, from a defensive point of view, if you look at you know some of the, the better examples of surviving uh, medieval castles that we have, are all built on bedrock. You know, um, so the material is there. The stone is there. Um, they just simply wouldn't have wanted to move it very far. Logistically, it just wouldn't have made sense. And also to the the schedule, you know, I keep using that term schedule, but how long it takes to get the job done, basically. Oh, yeah, um, for sure. So, yeah, the team would be assembled. Uh, journeymen would arrive. Uh, they would go to local lodgings uh, and live for essentially the duration of the job or, or until mm. the, the, the site was closed down for the winter, maybe, and they would return back to their towns and villages. Um, or to a local um, master mason might have a workshop where they would go back and work and carve the stone for the next season. An ecclesiastic style job or a defensive structure like a cathedral or a church uh, and defensive like a castle, that they would obviously took much longer than a dwelling. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you know, I have to sort of wonder, did, did certain masons specialize in one type of construction over another or was a goal to kind of Dip your dip your finger into as many pies as you could and become well acquainted with the needs of all these differing project uh, styles. Yeah, that's a good question. Now, uh, I would assume that um, out of the three different types of, of architecture, the dwelling, the house, the large house, uh, the defensive structure, the castle, or certainly the church or cathedral. So you've got ecclesiastic, defensive and dwelling. Um, the, the bigger money without being mercenary about it, you know, the bigger earnings are going to be with the ecclesiastic structure. Uh, I'm simply sure the because church of the has got all the money all the time. Yeah. And, and you know, that the, the, the wealth was there. And, and, uh, it's, uh, and, and there's a lot of decoration and what we call enrichments in a, a ecclesiastic building. So an enrichment is effectively a, a carving or a piece of sculpture that doesn't really add to the the engineering aspect or the strength and overall construction of the building, but 
it's there just to enrich it you know it's a piece of of art in itself so we would we would come across these details more in ecclesiastic building so oh, the more sure. sculpture yeah. the more carving <clears throat> the more detailed work within the stone um obviously the, the expense is going to be higher so i would say really to answer your question that you know a, a master mason really if it were me would want to specialize in ecclesiastic work and want to be working for the church as much as possible uh, that's certainly where you're going to get your name spread around anyway. Mm. Well, sure. Most people are, you're, you're going to, I should say, you're going to get a larger audience to your work, right? I mean, more people are. are going to be passing through a church than a particular defensive structure or certainly a dwelling. So that, that makes perfect sense. Sure. Yeah. And I understand that the guilds played a really key role in policing this, this, craft and and sort of managing the gates who got in um but did anyone else hold them accountable whether a local you know governing body of some kind or even just the jury of public opinion um i i would i would say probably not um uh, this is something i'd like to know a little bit more about myself but i would say probably not i would say the gills um would wield quite a lot of power to be honest the guilds are responsible really and maybe of being a first put a call um to to you know a client a proposed client being recommended they send inspectors around you know so people are are uh, I, admitted to the trade but you know then I, I just sort of want you you know the way you have inspectors coming around in a modern day construction project yeah i i mean um the master masons who would have been heavily associated in quite senior within the guild system or certainly the the livery companies um they they would have they would have been the inspectors on their sites. They would have been responsible for recruiting these journeymen craftsmen. Um, mm. And it, the, really that the problem is left at their door if, if the, you know, the guy turns up and he's, he isn't very, very good. So they would sure. have really policed and monitored the people on their own site, their own project. As regards to another authority or governing body above, um, the guild system i'm not aware of any i mean of the, the client themselves would you see you would have to have that initial knowledge of the craft yeah to, i was just you know i was just gonna say it, it's such know? specialized knowledge and there are so many yeah. elements of it that yeah the only people really in a position to judge the quality are those in the guild that's it but it was it was well within their interests to to do that um to to be very strict with with the people that were working out there and you know, promoting the craft and, and representing the craft and the guilds as a whole. So I would imagine it was quite a strict process. Uh, and maybe they had senior members of guilds that would arrive on sites, you know, to look and mm. assess mm -hmm. work. Um, if, if a I will say, if a journeyman working on a project really didn't cut the mark or wasn't producing work that was good enough, then that would be the end of his employment on that particular site. So um any if you had a good duration on a site then it was a good thing for you really um i, I, I would say you know most of, or everything was monitored at all times to be honest throughout the crafts and the trades that were working on the sites yeah i mean look aside from protecting those who are honest legitimate skilled masters of the craft there's a fundamental public safety issue at stake here right i mean yeah there this, is if if a stone building falls down with people inside you know I, I think it's likely to be more catastrophic than if a, a 
smaller wooden structure does not not to say people wouldn't still be injured and it wouldn't still be a a catastrophe but yeah I mean was that do you think sort of the biggest risk of doing this kind of work just not measuring up making a mistake in some of your geometry or what, what what do you think about that yeah I think um Definitely, that's a really good question, and, and the simple answer is yes. It, they're, they're, they're high risk involved. Um, certainly, historically, um, we spoke about engineering and design methods that had never been used before. So, exactly, um, I mean, they're yeah. on the, the bleeding edge of innovation here, and there are always yes, mistakes. Definitely. You know, what I mean, in the modern I mean, day, <laughs> in order for for them to realise that that the load bearing weight on a certain element of architecture was just simply too much. The tower was too tall, for example, there was simply too much masonry. Um, there would be an element of trial and error. You know, we do know that some yeah, towers came down um, north or south aisle walls on different churches and cathedrals. And what would happen after that is obviously that mistake can't be made again. So they would have to redesign and develop a, uh, an engineering detail that would solve that problem and certainly the details that were initially developed you know are still there and still standing the the flying buttress for example um and the scissor arch that we see in the crossing of a lot of the great cathedrals where as you look up you'll see a, a cross section of masonry um, what that does is it takes the weight uh, and there were no real formulas for these guys to work to. Um, so there must have been an element of trial and error. But if we look at the the, the everyday stonemason working on wooden scaffold that, that was essentially lashed together, you know, with a, a crude form, rudimentary form of rope with no handrails, you know, um, there were um, the main problem was falling from height. So death from height. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's still a problem now. We work at great heights, obviously. You know, we can work at a couple hundred feet off the ground. The scaffold is of a better quality and it's inspected now. Um, but there's still an element of danger involved. But it's still clearly more when so it rains the, and all those things. That's it. Yeah, there, there are. There's plenty of instances where um, guys would have fallen from scaffold. Um, and it, it's how they were compensated were, were, were any funds given to their families or, or anything like that. I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely a uh, it was historically a very dangerous job, and certainly as we spoke about the design process, you have to get it right. But also, actually, the the, the process of building these things, you know, um, how people often ask me, how did they get such high structures without modern scaffold? Well, the really simple answer is they didn't have modern scaffold; they had old scaffold. What's to them was <laughs> new. So um, there would be ways of getting. They stuff were perfectly up. pleased with it, I'm sure. Yeah, there, there's. Um, they had what we call now a term called a hamster wheel or, or, or a man wheel, which is a, essentially a huge wheel. If you imagine a hamster wheel with, with men in, two men, that would turn a wheel and that would be used to hoist up masonry. Obviously, there's, a, so there's an element of weight to stonework, but if he has to go to height, then he has to be lifted up there. Um, and they would use um, methods like that to get the stone up. Certainly, I've, I've found some research looking at earlier form of... Um, ships rigging techniques so a lot of the, the techniques used to to move and adjust uh, the sheets and sails on a on a vessel um, were just transferred over onto oh, land that makes perfect sense actually yeah to, to, to essentially, and winches yeah. and such huh. winches blocks and tackle things like that mm-hmm. uh, a device called a gin wheel which is essentially a wheel 
with a piece of rope going over it. There's no gearing to it. Um, very simple things. I'd love to talk a little bit more about your own experience as a master stonemason. Um, I love the story you told us earlier about um, your you know, art ability being tested on the fly in your second interview obviously that went well well done <laughs> that yeah, would have been a terrifying incident in, in an interview for me I am really not very good at any sort of drawing <laughs> um, but I, I'd love to go back to before that interview and you know could you share with us what drew you to this to this craft definitely yeah so um prior to that uh, I was at school um, I, I excelled. I had great encouragement, I will say, from my family, my parents, um, as, as regards to my ability to just randomly draw things and, and illustration ability. Um, and also, which is really important as well, I'll, I'll say, as you go through the, the school system, if you have good teachers that notice a talent in something and they encourage that, uh, art, being artistic you know when I was at school it sometimes was just well yeah okay you can draw but you know that's not going to get you a job or a profession or anything like that and it was kind of just the subject you did between maths and English or whatever um, but there was a couple of good art teachers mm -hmm. at, at my school and they really did encourage it and I said look there are professions you can go into you must pursue this and with uh, guidance to my parents as well um, I will say I had a huge interest in history. Um, I've always been fascinated mm. with history, you know, in any parts of history. Um, and, and as youngsters, myself and my brother would be taken around to, you know, for the day out at a National Trust house, something like that. We'd have a day out to another city somewhere or a town and walk around the great cathedrals. And I used to look up at the, the huge engineering stoneworks in a cathedral and the carvings and sculpture and I'd be fascinated thinking well, well there's just a romance they... in it right I mean yeah it's yeah well inherently... how did they do that from a block of stone I mean it just fascinated me and hmm. so um when I left school I there was a couple of other things maybe I wanted to do you know 16 year olds I don't think we you know we're really 100% sure what we want to do um I was going to go art school study fine art whatever and I I thought I sat down, I thought, well, I'm going to try and find um, an apprenticeship. And in those days, they were around, you know, uh, not so much a training scheme, but a proper apprenticeship. Um, and I dug around, I inquired, and I eventually found uh, an apprenticeship as an apprentice stonemason and sculptor. Um, and, and so the rest is history. It was very rare, if I might say, um, even in those days. You know, I left school in 1988, so... Um, that there were fewer proper apprenticeships around in those days than there are today. But I, I managed to find one and clearly impressed the mastermason enough um, to, to get the job. And, you know, the rest is history. But there, there's, a, there's a massive passion, I think, that I'm not going to say you need it to operate within a craft in what we call the heritage industry. But I think it helps, you know, um, it helps to keep it us going. It helps in any industry. Yeah, of course. <laughs> path, yeah, I mean... I yeah, do. That's uh, the that's the gold standard. That's I think that gold that brass ring we're all looking for out of life, yeah, right? You, you've I mean, got to have it, and, and maybe on a, a, a February morning when it's snowing, and I've got to climb a two hundred foot scaffold to do some work on a church tower, and it's freezing. Maybe the passion probably isn't there so much, but you know, it, it's it, we're we're creating as as craftsmen stonework that will be around for many hundreds of years, and 
um, and and following in the footsteps, you know, with pride actually of of our forebears, the craftsmen, the, the ingenious, in my opinion, master masons that created these beautiful buildings that we still can look at and appreciate to this day. So, so that's what drew me to it, and that's that's why I'm still doing it to this day. <laughs> well, I think that's a really important point, which is there are very few materials that persist in the landscape the way stone does and worked stone has a really central role throughout human history and across yeah. cultures in in any part of the world where stone construction is is a norm i mean yeah. that's that's what endures so it is incredibly exciting and again i'm going to use the word romantic because i sure. I, I think you know we all i think to some degree would like to think we would change the world for the better with whatever work we do on this planet while we're here and and That's stonemason it. really has a claim for longevity that many many trades and crafts do not yeah it's certainly a um, of, of all the mediums relevant to construction i think it's it's i mean uh, some people have an impression of stone of being old and green and falling apart but you know we have to understand that there's still ancient stone structures around and we've got to look at you know some of the beautiful egyptian structures um and and i think as as the modern world takes over in so many ways with everyday life and things are automatic there's machines and appliances and things to do things for us that we sometimes lose touch really i think with the the, the power and capacity of a human being generally with you know some what would be rudimentary tools and chisels and mallet can actually create beautiful things and we can still do it to this day and i'm forever trying to convince people that i don't use lasers or computers or fancy machinery to create the work that i do um, i do it exactly the same way and um i think it's that's that's why I wanted to do this talk today with you, Karen, really, just to, to say, look, you know, we're still out there and the, the craft is going to be around for many, many years to come. And, you know, hopefully we can recruit some guys and girls into it. Yeah, tell me, what do you see as the future of master stoneworking in the 21st century? And, and what would you like to see? Maybe more to the point. I'd, I'd like to see um, a return maybe to the... the something similar to the apprenticeship system that I that I undertook that's effectively being apprenticed by a, a master within that particular craft or trade um, it, it, my own point of view is the best purest way to learn um, in my experience a craft is, is to work in that environment and be trained in it every day so not so much to be in a sterile environment of a college somewhere or a training institution where things, you know, to some extent can be too orchestrated or, or, or too clean, um, mm, to, mm. to be trained within on day one, the environment that you hopefully will be working in for the rest of your life. I mean, a good example of that was the first week I started as an apprentice. I was on site climbing scaffold 120 feet in the air. So I well, knew. Was that a test too? Away. Does he, does he have vertigo? That <laughs> he was has a vertigo. Test. He's that not going to make it. I wouldn't have made that one either. I would have been the, out before the art thing was over, but that, that would have really done. <laughs> well, the, the reason I know it was a test is because uh, when I got to the top, they waved me back down again and, and, without even going up there to get anything so oh. um, yeah and, you know it's if you work if 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 the, if the college environment um is too it dominates the training too much i think you can be separated really 
too much away from the environment you're going to be working in hopefully mm. so yeah. yeah i'd like to see yeah. apprenticeships a minimum of four and a half five years really um i'd like to see maybe more promotion of the craft within you know the school system we do a lot ourselves as professionals and i know the livery company the masons company do a brilliant job but uh, i often get you know asked you know youngsters say i really never knew about the crafts um i really didn't know about that i thought it was just a quaint thing that maybe someone might or might not you know might not do but but that, i'd like to see that the future is incredibly important for the craft because clearly the the reason we have beautiful cathedrals churches national trust uh, houses palaces monuments and we still admire these structures is because you know uh, guys like me and other people for many years have kept them going by restoring them and conserving them so that in essence the importance to the future of historic architecture i think really is relevant to the future of, of the crafts and the, he the heritage trade so i say so that's what i'd like to see you know when i'm long gone i'm, I'm hoping that the you know, the, my craft skills can be passed down. And certainly I do pass my skills down. I do have people that train with me from other companies. Uh, something that's very, you know, dear to my heart, making sure the skills that I was passed down to that I can forward on to someone else. So the, there's no break in the skills, if you know what I mean. Um, it's consistent. I have to say what, what occurs to me listening to you, Brad, is that, you know, I, I think, in the UK and also from the United States, where I obviously hail from originally, there's something of a crisis in higher education. And I'm not sure that the university system works for many people who nonetheless find themselves kind of funneled into it, and maybe partly for want of knowing alternative options. I mean, it seems like the opportunity to engage in training for a craft such as stonemasonry which as you say has this incredibly deep and rich history yeah could be a really good avenue for a lot of people exactly yeah and and i think academia specifically as you as you rightly said people feel that they have to just go into to that go to university maybe they're just not sure of what else is out there um i know that apprenticeships are, are making a comeback on a small scale with you know, in professional areas um, as well, you know, so you would actually go to a company, be employed by them and you would gain, um, you know, degrees via that company yeah. as opposed to going, doing the degree first and not having a secure job. So, um, and not yeah. really knowing how to do the job until you get there. So exactly. ending up serving yeah. coffee. <laughs> well, oh, well, do you know, well, yeah, I wonder, yeah. do you have any advice or where would you, where would you point somebody who came to you and said, wow, Brad, I'd like to know how to do what you do. Are, are there any organizations that we can promote, you know, on behalf of, of stonemasonry yeah. and the other skilled crafts such as yours? My advice would be, uh, and I know I've promoted them a, a fair bit in this talk, but the, the Worshipful Company of Masons, um, you can Google Masons Livery and you will find their website. So on the website, you will see a section for funding and training. Um, the reason I recommend those for the best avenue or route is not so much that you may get funding from them, but uh, they will direct you to a place called the Buildings Crafts College, which is in the east end of London. Um, and that, that's a, an, an excellent institution. You can go there and you can do uh, a course, albeit a smaller course there than obviously my 
apprenticeship, but it will give you a taste really of the craft itself and an opportunity to pursue a career in the craft. So yeah, uh, my advice would be have a look on the Worshipful Company of Masons website. So if you Google Masons Livery, uh, that's M-A-S-O-N-L-I-V-E-R-Y, and uh, you should come across all the information you need. Thank you so much. No problem. Humans have worked with stone since the dawn of our species, fashioning our earliest tools from it, then learning to shape stone itself into ever more practical and beautiful forms. Our relationship with stone and the monuments we've crafted from it have been literally millions of years in the making. And stone monuments are among the most enduring marks humans have yet to leave on the planet. But no matter how fast technology evolves, the fundamental ways in which stonemasons engage with their raw material remains essentially the same. So this ancient craft is at once a symbol of our connection to the earth, an icon of our ingenuity, and an artistic statement likely to survive long beyond most other forms of human expression. Thanks as always for listening. Hey there, you can follow today's guest at Brad Stonemason on Twitter. For more information about the education opportunities mentioned in this episode, check out the Worshipful Company of Masons at masonslivery.org. Here, you'll find all types of information about educational programs, apprenticeships, grant opportunities, and so much more. For show updates and additional content, follow us on Twitter at WorkingOTSeries. Thanks for listening. Working Over Time is part of the Little Fire Podcast Network and is made in collaboration with Past Preservers. Today's episode was recorded live across the globe over Zoom. It was produced by Karen Bellinger, Nigel Hetherington, Aidan Law Liberty, and Raz Cunningham. Our director was Raz Cunningham. Follow us on social media for additional content and show updates at Working OT Series on Twitter and Working Overtime Series on Instagram. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>